This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Terawan Saranai, and once more welcome to the program. We've been talking about joyous effort or enthusiasm as one of the six major activities that a Bodhisattva perfects as a practice on the path to enlightenment. That path is long and sometimes difficult, so we have to cultivate a really strong enthusiasm that will sustain us as we go. Otherwise, we may easily give up long before we get to the end. If you remember, joyous effort counteracts what in Tibetan Buddhism at least is called the three lazinesses. And in the last two programs, we've been through two of them, the laziness of procrastination and the laziness of being attracted to meaningless activities. Today we will briefly look at the third, the laziness of inadequacy. But before that, let's think about motivation as we usually do. What is your motivation for participating in the program today? If you really want to make the program meaningful in your life, then the motivation has to be something more than just random enjoyment, fun, or because you just happen to tune in to the frequency. Those sorts of motivations will not make this program mean much to you. Probably by tomorrow you would have forgotten all about it. However, if we participate with the thought that it will steer us on the path to enlightenment so we can best help others, the program will be very meaningful both in this life and until we become Buddhas. So let's take a moment to make sure our motivation is for that aim rather than for something trivial. Thank you. Now, as I said, we spoke about the obstacle to enthusiasm for our practice being laziness. The laziness of procrastination, you may remember, is that urge that makes us put off Dharma practice until sometime in the future. We think we have to make a lot of money first, or we have to see the kids through school, or to get a good degree or a good job. We make excuses why we can't engage in Dharma practice now, and even maybe promise to do so in the future. But that promise has little chance of being fulfilled because something else will always crop up, need our immediate attention, and push Dharma practice out of the way. We will always be making excuses and never getting down to practice. Then the laziness of being attracted to meaningless activities we covered last week. It involves that urge that takes our attention to activities that will actually mean very little at death time or in coming lives. So, for instance, it might seem terribly important to some people to win the World Cup in this life, but in the grand scheme of things, winning the World Cup is just a waste of precious time. If we put our attention on practicing things like love, tolerance, compassion and wisdom, we'll be much better off in coming lives, whereas winning the World Cup probably will not benefit us at all. So it's much better for us to avoid letting ourselves be dragged into such meaningless activities, even though the rest of the world is slavering over them. So those are the two of the three lazinesses we have covered, and now we come to the third one, the laziness of inadequacy. We use this as an excuse when we say we are not good enough. 
Like when I tell guys they should become monks, and they say something like, Oh, my mind isn't good enough. It doesn't settle down. Whenever we place limitations in our practice, we are indulging in this type of laziness. I'm too old to do strenuous practice, we say. Or Buddhist monks can do it in a peaceful monastery. But I have a wife and children to look after, a mortgage to pay and a home to run. I can't do it. Actually, Dharma practice doesn't only take place in a quiet monastery. If we have the right outlook, we can practice even in the busiest of jobs. Say, for instance, we work in a particular restaurant that's always flat out. Of course, we can get stressed and run around with a worried look on our face and often complain how difficult it is. Or we can maintain mindfulness and try to give the customers the best experience we can, focusing on making them happy and increasing our own level of, levels of tolerance and understanding, even though we're rushed off our feet at times. That is Dharma practice. So we can see that it is possible to practice in that way wherever we are. In fact, a highly realized being will probably be found in the thick of things rather than in a peaceful monastery, because you can find more beings to help where many people congregate. Buddha Shakyamuni and all the highly realized beings were once just the same as us, but the difference between them and us is that they didn't put limitations on themselves and kept their enthusiasm for the practice high. The Buddha said that if we did as he did, we would also attain enlightenment. So as we have a precious human rebirth now, we can start right where we are and work steadily from now on. As the Buddha in all his lives applied the Dharma to whatever circumstances he found himself in, we can do the same and get the same result. We all have the same Buddha potential. It's only a matter of realizing and developing, developing it with constant practice driven by enthusiasm. Then even if we didn't care about becoming enlightened, we'd attain enlightenment anyway. So how do we develop our enthusiasm or joyous effort so that we can develop a consistent practice? We follow a four-step process that begins with aspiration. We begin by developing an aspiration to always engage in virtuous actions and to be put off by non-virtue. Of course, the desire to follow a certain course of action will come from knowing the advantages you will get from it and the disadvantages that follow if you embark on the opposite course of action. So, for instance, we might have the thought that it would be nice to become a good cook. We might go to a few restaurants that serve beautiful meals and think how wonderful it would be if we could make such meals ourselves. We can imagine inviting friends to dinner parties where we serve meals that everyone smacks their lips at and really enjoys and never serving any of those sorts of meals that Gordon Ramsay drops several four-letter words at. That persuades us to start looking through cookery books and slowly building up a library of recipes, going to cooking classes and so on. It's that aspiration fueled by knowing the advantages of making good food that will keep us going until we become really quite exceptional in the kitchen. Similarly with Dharma practice, we build an aspiration for virtue by considering what advantages it will bring us and also keeping in mind what non-virtue leads to. As we discussed in previous programs, the causes for our suffering are karma and afflictive emotions. Overtaken by afflictive emotion, we create actions that place imprints in our mind that will lead to future experiences.
Those karmic imprints that lead to suffering experiences come from actions we call non-virtuous. Actions that lead to happy experiences we say are virtuous. Now, as far as I know, we all want happy experiences and not unhappy ones. Certainly, I don't know of anybody that seeks out misery. So if that is our drive, then we have to create actions that lead to happiness and not those that go in the opposite direction. We have to know the karmic results of our actions and realize that if we let ourselves follow instinct and create non-virtuous actions, we will in the future just encounter all the things we don't want. More problems, greater difficulties, more stress and all the sufferings of cyclic existence. Last week we went through some of them. Constant uncertainty and dissatisfaction, continually going through the birth and death processes as we go from life to life, our constant change of status and our essentially lonely nature. We can, of course, add sickness, aging, bumping up against what we don't want to and not meeting up with what we want and frustrated desire. We can also talk about the suffering experienced in the various realms, the torture and temperature extremes in the hells, the lack of resources in the hungry ghost realms, and the abuse and stupidity in amongst the animals in particular. As long as we don't address the actions we commit and continue just to follow our whims, instincts and inclinations, we will always be in line for these sufferings, and we'll have no way to avoid them. But if we know what actions will lead further and further away from such experiences, the more we will be inclined to create those actions and abandon any others. So, thinking about the karmic causes of actions will build in us an aspiration to create virtue and to avoid non-virtue, because we will know that with the one we get closer to our goal, while the other leads us further away into swamps of suffering. One commentary advises that we strongly visualize our suffering in the lower realms or in unfortunate situations on earth, like being a diseased beggar, seeing how the good circumstances we now enjoy are severely degenerated, and then relate that back to our non-virtuous actions. All our good health, wealth, friends have disappeared and have been replaced by the opposites, disease, poverty, lack of companions and so on. This is caused by our negative actions. Then we imagine ourselves in the God realms, or perhaps in the best type of earthly situation, like a prince or a great movie star. We have excellent health, as many resources as we wish, and a multitude of great companions. All this is the result of the karma brought about by positive actions. Of course, we are not visualizing these so that we make them our ultimate aim, but so that we are in a much better position to continue our spiritual progress and help others. But principally here, we visualize them to encourage ourselves to engage only in virtuous activities and to abandon non-virtue. That is our main aim in these visualizations, and they should assist us in developing a strong aspiration to follow those actions that lead to joyous effort and Buddhahood. The second of the four-step process is to make ourselves steady in everything we do. This means we don't start something and leave it halfway through, but take it through right to the end. Therefore, it's not advisable to put ourselves forward for too many activities we are uncertain about. Starting an undertaking and not finishing it 
can create a pattern that will bring a lot of difficulties in coming lives. So it's better if we really think about whether we can take it on and then keep it going. A few programs ago, I talked about a newbie to Buddhism who decided he didn't want to go to the hell realms and so set himself the task of doing 1,000 full-length prostrations a day as a purification practice. Within a week or two, he was completely stressed out. He'd taken on far too much too quickly. This is how not to practice. We need to think carefully about what we can and can't do and then only attempt what we are confident of finishing. It is much too easy in the beginning to get very enthusiastic about the Dharma without fully realizing that it's several lifetimes practice and that it's very unlikely we'll be able to finish even a small fraction in this life. Better to proceed at a pace we can easily follow, doing whatever we can best keep going, rather than trying to be Moggallana on steroids. So take it all one step at a time. If we are successful with the first step, for instance, we will naturally be happy to proceed to the next step with confidence in our own ability. I guess like playing one of those multidimensional computer games where if you win at one level, you go up to a harder level. It's that success in the lower level or the first steps in Dharma practice that spurs us to go on and conquer the following steps. I don't have much interest in computer games, but used to have a friend that became quite a whiz. He used to invite me to play something with a battlefield and a helicopter, if I remember correctly, and this was long before I became a monk. I played because I liked spending time with him and had a mild interest in the game, but really couldn't be bothered to put too much effort into it. Anyway, I never got beyond the first level, and even that I didn't complete at all that well. Better to go about our Dharma practice like he played this particular computer game, mastering level by level until he could play them all well. If we rather dive into a long solitary retreat early on in our practice, it's unlikely that we will achieve anything very much. Our minds and bodies will not be ready to undergo the rigors of the retreat and we will soon have to give up, not setting a good precedent for the flourishing of our practice at all. To finish what we start, it is useful to cultivate three kinds of self-confidence, starting with a belief that we don't need the support of anybody else on our spiritual journey. We can do it all ourselves. A bit like the Buddha when he set off into the forest to find the end to suffering. Of course, he did follow one or two teachers at first, but in the end he did all the work for himself without reliance on anyone else. Then, recognizing that when beings act under delusion, they cannot even help themselves, we take on the responsibility to assist them and do whatever we can for them. And the third kind of self-confidence comes from the thought that we will never give in to the afflictive emotions. Whenever the afflictive emotions take over, they harm us terribly. So, recognizing this, we make a strong determination not to let them rule our actions. This, of course, means that we will have to develop a powerful mindfulness so that when even the slightest afflictive emotion arises, we can apply an antidote immediately. When these three types of self-confidence, the self-confidence that needs no support from others, the self-confidence to accomplish the aims of others, and the determination not to give in to the afflictive emotions, we can develop a steadiness to our practice that will really benefit us now and in the future.
The third step in this process to build and maintain joyous effort or enthusiasm is to try and approach every, everything we do with joy. If we have both aspiration and self-confidence, it shouldn't be too difficult to enjoy whatever virtue we decide to engage in, so that we don't want to stop doing it. In his book, Path to Enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism, Geshe Lodin says our enjoyment should be like that of a child playing with a favorite toy. And Shantideva, in A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, encourages us to complete what we are doing with the same satisfaction that an elephant plunges into a cool pool on a very hot day. Then the last step is to stop when you need to. This really means that when it's time for rest, we should put the work aside and take time out. We can come back to the task when we're refreshed and ready again, for then we will again experience joy in doing it. Geshe Lodin says, If you do not take some rest when you are overtired, your progress will falter, and by pu pushing too much, you may damage your health and shorten your lifespan. Making too great an effort and not seeing progress will also lead to discouragement. It is important to practice joyfully with a light and happy frame of mind. If you attempted to walk from one side of a continent to the other without stopping for breaks, you would collapse from exhaustion and not reach your destination. With timely and appropriate rest, though, you could complete such a journey. Then he goes on to advise that rest shouldn't become our practice. He says, The time for rest is when you are tired from genuine exertion, but rest should not be the cornerstone of your practice. With intermittent rest, apply joyous effort continuously and steadily until you attain your goal. Steady and consistent is best. Be like the tortoise, not the hare. So those are the four steps in developing joyous effort or enthusiasm. Briefly, they are first developing that aspiration for virtuous actions by seeing their benefits and avoiding non-virtuous actions by recognizing the suffering they bring. Second is maintaining steadiness by not taking on anything that we think we cannot complete. And everything that we do take on, we drive through to the end. We start with the basics and then progress step by step, level by level, until we can accomplish the greatest through our successes in the lesser levels. In doing all this, we rely on self-confidence that doesn't seek support from others, but takes on the responsibility to do positive things for them instead, and also doesn't give in to the delusions or afflictive emotions. Then third is approaching everything we do with a joyful mind, like a child approaches playing with its favorite toy. And fourth is to take rest when we need it, but not to let rest become our main activity. Progressing in this way, we should be able to steadily build an enthusiasm that is difficult to break, even in the worst circumstances. In Tibet, the communists are pretty harsh on the monks and the monasteries. They have an ongoing re-education program which tries to force the monks to denounce His Holiness the Dalai Lama and to do things contrary to the monks' practices. I have heard of monks who refused to buckle to the communist demands and when they were told they would go to prison if they didn't, went to fetch their mugs so that they would have something to eat of out of in prison. Make no mistake, prison in Tibet is not as we understand it here, especially for political prisoners. It's very harsh, 
The monks are often tortured and beaten, and in those days they were not given anything to eat. Prisoners got food from family and friends, I guess. Read a book called Fire Under the Snow that describes the ordeal of one monk in the prison. It tells of some pretty horrific ordeals the prisoners had to go through. But anyway, even in such circumstances, monks with strong enthusiasm have not given in to creating non-virtuous actions. You really have to have a very powerful belief in karma, though. That kind of enthusiasm has been given the name armor-like joyous effort, as it completely protects us from laziness. Geshe Loden says it's the kind of dauntless energy where one feels, whatever difficulties I encounter and however long it takes, I will persevere until I gain enlightenment. With this kind of attitude, he says, whatever we do, even if it's quite strenuous, we will find it much easier to practice constantly even if we don't seem to make much progress. It will help us overcome all our difficulties. Then there's also a joyous effort in doing whatever we can to practice virtuous activities like the ten virtues, the six perfections, and so on. And another kind of joyous effort is that which benefits beings, and this means actively helping others in whatever way we can, happily turning all our worldly activities into the path to enlightenment. So now I hope you have some idea of the perfection of joyous effort. Like the other perfections we talked about, this can be practiced with the three supreme qualities, supreme reliance, supreme method, and supreme dedication. Just as we described with the other perfections, supreme reliance means relying on bodhicitta as the motivation for engaging in joyous effort. Through my practice of joyous effort, may I and all living beings be freed from suffering and quickly attain enlightenment. Then, supreme method is seeing that oneself, the act of joyous effort, and the object of the effort are all empty of any inherent independent existence. This way, any pride or self-importance in the practice will be overcome. Then, supreme dedication is the dedication of any merit accumulated by joyous effort to gaining enlightenment. Added to these are supreme object, supreme purpose, and supreme purity. Supreme object means that the level of practice should be of the highest quality. In other words, we make sure our activity will develop our mind most quickly towards attaining enlightenment. Supreme purpose is to bring ultimate and temporary benefit to all beings, and supreme purity means keeping our mind free from the obstructions to liberation and the obstructions to omniscience that is, the afflictive emotions and the subtle stains that they leave on our minds. We can practice joyous effort in conjunction with the six perfections themselves, as we did with the morality, generosity and patience. So practicing generosity with joyous effort is leading others to this practice and giving encouragement to those who have lost interest and energy for practice. Practicing ethics with joyous effort means being careful not to break any of our vows, while we're practicing, and also being careful not to harm others. Practicing patience with joyous effort is being patient with the object of our practice and any obstacles that we encounter in the practice. And practicing joyous effort with joyous effort, we allow the tendencies we develop through our practice of joyous effort to help us practice it continuously in the future, aspiring to so practice until enlightenment. 
Keeping the mind undistracted and calm during the practice is concentration with joyous effort. And finally, using wisdom with joyous effort means knowing how to practice joyous effort skillfully and knowing the best areas to apply ourselves. And being aware that myself, the practice and the object are all empty of inherent independent existence. We've gone through practicing joyous effort with the six supreme qualities and the six perfections quite briefly, because that might all be a bit beyond us beginners, but we can aspire to practice like that in the future. Advanced practitioners will make them all part of their practice, but we may not be there yet. So that completes our discussion on the perfection of joyous effort. Let's now do a short meditation on joyous effort to finish the program. Sit comfortably and looking into your mind, see how the three lazinesses affect you. The laziness of procrastination, the laziness of being attracted to meaningless activities and the laziness of thinking you are not good enough. Are these part of your mind and how do they affect the things you do? Remember how if we want to achieve anything well, we have to apply a determined enthusiasm, especially if we want to attain enlightenment, because practicing the Dharma is not easy and needs a lot of application. Make the determination or aspiration that you will practice joyfully with a self-confidence that does not rely on others but will do anything to help them achieve their goals. Also, you will not give in to the afflictive emotions but develop a strong mindfulness that counteracts them whenever they arise. Okay, now please come out of meditation. Time is up and we must go. 
Thank you for joining us today and please do so again next week. Please dedicate any positive potential from this program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.